2 Kings chapter 6 this morning. Kings, what were we at today? We're in six, chapter six today. Yeah. His name was Gehazi, <clears throat> and he was given Naaman's leprosy. Oh, that's right. Oh, yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Second Kings, chapter six. These lessons are our first point this morning is perseverance in the midst of poverty. Perseverance in the midst of poverty. We'll read the first bit this morning. It says in verse 1, And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. The word straight there means like narrow or small. The place where they were meeting had become too small. You will hear some uh, people who teach on this subject say that this is a prophet's school that they're in, and that these students of the prophet Elisha had become so successful and so popular, there were so many of them, that they had to build a bigger school. This was not a school. The people talking to him were not prophets. Uh, if you reread the passage, it is the sons of the prophets. Right? So who are these people? These are people that grew up with uh, some sort of prophet or prophetess as a parent, and knew the importance of the work and wanted to uh, be a part of Elisha's ministry. Right? These weren't people that were learning to go out and prophesy for themselves. The call from the Lord comes without a need for formal education. But these people wanted to be a part of Elisha's work. They wanted to do something to contribute to what God was doing in Israel. And Elisha's ministry had become so popular and so many people wanted to take part in it that they had a need to grow uh, his ministry. They needed to build a bigger building because they had grown beyond the need of that building. So they come to him and they say, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight, it's too small, it's too narrow, there's not enough space for everybody. What a tremendous problem Elisha had in the midst of a really difficult time for other people. It's easy to find all the ways that we struggle. Right? You don't have to really go and hunt for that, do you? Usually you can find the things that you don't care for about your own life pretty easily. But Elisha and the sons of the prophets had discovered the things that God was doing for them. They had developed a brotherhood, a camaraderie, a family. There in the midst of turmoil and difficulty, they learned to persevere by leaning on each other. Instead of focusing on all the people they didn't have anymore, or focusing on all the things they didn't have anymore, or all the things they couldn't do anymore, they focused on each other. When you're going through a hard time, one of the things that's going to help you the most is helping somebody else. Problem, right? I can go to this homeless shelter and I can make coffee, right? I can uh, get beds out for people. I can do things for somebody else. I can solve their problem. 
And after a while, you get your eyes off of yourself and onto other people and helping them, that eventually begins to heal you. That's the way the Lord built us. We're made to be creatures of family, of camaraderie, of togetherness. So they learn to persevere in the midst of poverty by leaning on one another and helping one another. We'll see that pay off toward the end of this first point. But it says in verse 2, they said to him, Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam. And let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. So what they said is, let's go to the forest by the river of Jordan. And there we will get beams. Now, obviously they're going to get beams by cutting down trees and stripping them and making them into logs to build a bigger place. That's the plan. But how are they going to do this? How are they going to build? Each and every one of them is going to go. Each and every one of them is going to fell a tree. They're going to prepare the tree, and they're each one of them going to do their part in building this building. Building something like what we're doing here, like a church, or trying to build a family, or, or trying to build a life for yourself even, is not something you can go and do by yourself. I hear a lot of people talk about being a man, you know, and a man pulls himself up by the bootstraps and he gets him there by himself. He doesn't need anybody else's help. He goes and he works hard and he does it by himself. That's what a man does. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Nobody gets there by themselves. Somebody helped you. Somebody opened a door for you. Somebody did something for you. You didn't get there by yourself. We can work hard and we should work hard. We, can, we should be able to pull ourselves up when we're feeling down, but somebody helped you out along the way. You didn't get there by yourself. We owe a great deal to one another. If we want this church to grow, we're going to have to each go fell our own spiritual tree and do our part in growing this church. And that doesn't happen a lot of times in a physical way. It doesn't happen in ways that you can see with your own eyes. And sometimes that makes what we do here very frustrating. Because a, because a lot of times when you work, you want to see the fruits of your labor, don't you? You want to see there's a pap stack of papers on my desk that tall. By the end of the day, it was that tall. I can see I made progress. Right? A carpenter goes and he goes to build a table. And he's got nothing but a pile of wood when he starts off. And by the end of the day, he's got a table. You can see the work and the progress and the fruits of your labor. You go out to mow the yard. And as you're mowing the yard, you can see where the tall grass was and the part that looks nice and cut, those nice clean lines down the yard, you can see the fruits of your labor. We want to see the fruits of our labor, but when it comes to the work of the Lord, you can't always see the fruits of your labor. I tell you, from my experience personally, a lot of times when people are having a hard time, they'll come to me for counseling. They'll ask me to help them through their hard times. And I'm certainly glad to do so. It's what the Lord called me to do. And what happens is we sit and we talk for a while and, and I give them some things to think about and they go off and perhaps the Lord was able to use me to help them. But then they go off and they feel better. 
but usually I don't ever hear about it because it's a very personal thing. That's a kind of a thing where the work of the Lord, you don't always see the fruits of your labor. Perhaps you go off and you hand a tract to some stranger or you leave it somewhere where some stranger is going to find it. That's another thing where you can't always see the fruits of your labor. So the work of the Lord is one we do by faith. Right? It's not one that you can see and prove to yourself that, yes, this is working, something's getting done. Sometimes you just have to trust by faith that the Lord is growing those seeds that we're planting, even though we can't see it. That's uh, the way it was for the Apostle Paul a lot of times in his ministry. He'd come to a town, he'd plant some seed of the gospel, and he'd have to leave. And the only way he knew if his work held any fruit was the rumors of the other towns about a church that started in the town he was at before. So to persevere in the midst of difficult times, to persevere in the midst of poverty as they were, they had to learn to appreciate the accomplishments they could and couldn't see. They're sons of the prophets, right? They're not just building a building, right? They're building a bigger place so that... And we do the same good work that they do. We all come together for this work. We, every man, take thence a beam. It says in verse 3, One said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So this is interesting to me. So basically what this means was Elisha was telling them, Yes, go build us a bigger building. But he wasn't going to go. Right? He wasn't going to be one of the ones that grabbed an axe and swung at a tree and knocked it down and stripped the bark and prepared it for building. This is probably because at this point in Elisha's life, he was probably an elderly man and was incapable of doing the same kind of work that the younger men were able to do. But what this teaches us is that in the house of God, in the work of God, people have different callings. We talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians in our Bible study not that long ago about how the Apostle Paul referred to the church as like a body, right? Each individual church is like a body. And if the whole body were an eye, we wouldn't be able to hear, right? And if the whole body were an ear, we wouldn't be able to smell, right? Each member of the body serves a different purpose. Elisha's purpose wasn't the physical work. His was the spiritual work. I don't think there's anything wrong with a pastor getting his hands dirty. As a matter of fact, it's usually me or Amanda that's in here at midnight cleaning up the, the living room for the next morning because we're the ones that don't sleep. So but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with a pastor who's willing to go in there and unclog a toilet after a kid's clogged it up and filled it up with toilet paper. Can't tell you how many times that's happened. There's nothing wrong with a pastor who wants to get his hands dirty and work. Uh, but my point is, is that there are some people who can't do that. They can't get their hands dirty. They can't go out and sweep a, a floor. They can't vacuum the, the... They just physically can't do those things anymore. But that doesn't mean there's nothing they can do for the house of the Lord. We each have a different calling. Perhaps somebody who's a, an eloquent and wonderful, masterful teacher can't do the physical work. And maybe somebody who's a real people person and can go out and, and is a real natural soul winner, go out and invite people to church and invite them to know the Lord as their Savior. Maybe they're very good at that, but they're not much of a teacher. 
We all serve different purposes in the work of the Lord. Verse 4 says, uh, So he went with them, and they came to Jordan, and they cut, uh, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. So we learn a lot from this passage. The man was using a borrowed axe. Right, what does that tell us? It tells us he didn't have an axe of his own. He couldn't afford to go and purchase one. Right, but because it's a brotherhood, it's a camaraderie, it's a fellowship. He borrowed an axe from somebody who had an extra one. And as he's using the axe to fell a tree, the axe head comes flying off of it into the water. And he's tremendously upset. And we can see some real honorable uh, behavior on his part here. Number one, because he was upset that the axe broke. That this might be because he could no longer do the work he was trying to do with the axe and that bothered him. And that is a very honorable thing. There are going to be a lot of times where it's easy to get out of the work of God when you're looking to get out of it. But the true measure of a disciple of Christ is those who look to get into it. And he was disturbed that he could no longer perform the work he wanted to do. Also, we could see, secondly, he was disturbed because it was borrowed. And that's what he said. Perhaps he would be less upset if he had uh, lost the axe head of his own axe. But because this belonged to a friend or a neighbor, somebody who was willing to be generous enough to let him borrow it, this bothered him even more. And many of us understand this. If it was my... You know, if I borrowed somebody else's weed whacker and it broke, that would be a lot more upsetting to me than if I had broken my own. If I broke my own, I could sit it in the garage and say, I'll try to fix it another day or maybe I'll replace it when I have the money. But when it's somebody else's, there's like a panic, right? There's an, oh my gosh, what am I going to tell them? What am I going to say? I mean, I, I can't afford to replace this. What am I going to do? And there was a panic about this man because the borrowed axe was broken. And he goes to Elisha and he says, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So we see what Elisha does. There in verse 6, he says, The man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place in the water where the axe had fallen into. And he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Now this is tremendous because first of all it's a miracle and that's an amazing thing but also it's symbolic because iron is strong, right? There's a reason we use an iron axe head because it's strong, it's firm, it's solid, it's dependable. It's not going to just break. Like if you were trying to use a stick for something, sticks break very easily. But the axe head did break. And it fell in the water. And what he used to get it was a stick. You wouldn't imagine a stick being of much use to get an axe head out of the water. There are going to be a lot of people that the Lord is going to be able to use that we wouldn't think he could. And the independent Baptist community is in turmoil today. 
And that's because we've turned it into a business. It's an industry. And in that industry, men play God. And they decide who's called and who's not. They look at a, a young man and they, they like the cut of his jib. And they decide that this young man is called by God. And they look at another young man who they don't know, wasn't a part of any of their fellowship of churches. He's not related to a preacher. They don't know him from Adam. They don't like the cut of his jib and they decide that he's not called by God. But you know what happens is the man they decided was called, he'll quit. He'll stop performing the ministry his pastor called him to because it wasn't God that called him to it. And the young man who they thought wouldn't amount to much, he'll be the one that stays in the ministry. These pieces of iron, they sink. And sometimes these twigs we don't think much of, they're the ones that get the job done. Sometimes a twig can save a piece of iron. Massive things that aren't supposed to break, they do. Look at the Titanic. The unsinkable ship sank on its maiden voyage. The Lord shows us that nothing is unbreakable, but anything is usable. The message of the, uh, the uh, borrowed axe. But verse 7, notice that he threw the stick out there, it rose to the top, it floated to the top, but the man didn't have it yet, did he? It's still just floating at the top of the water. Verse 7, therefore, said he, Take it up to thee, and he put out his hand and took it. It said, well, why does the Bible feel it necessary to tell us he reached out and grabbed it? Isn't that insinuated? It's not always insinuated. Just because the axe head has been rescued doesn't mean the man reached out and grabbed it. It said, well, what kind of a fool wouldn't reach out and grab a miracle by God? Happens every day. All the time. The Lord wants to help us, to perform miracles for us, to do things for us. But we want to do it ourselves. That old thing of, no, no, I'm a man. But a man does it by himself. I, I'm going to get out here and I'm going to do it by myself. Lord, I don't need nobody to help me. I'm a man. Stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Have you ever seen a kid trying to do, you know, some sort of complex thing? Maybe he's trying to solve a puzzle or he's trying to piece something together. We bought Jacob yesterday. It's, a, it's a, like a Hot Wheels track, but it's for Mario Kart, right? So it's got like one of the racetracks from that Mario Kart video game as like the racetrack for the car. So it's got like a haunted library and it's got the little booze from Mario moving up and down. You put them on the track and you shoot it and it flies over one and goes under the other and comes back. It's really cool, actually. But yesterday, he had the box, right? He was so excited to get it and unbox it and play with it. He had the box. He's trying to get it open by himself. And he's tearing the top off. He's trying to tear the top off. And I, I grabbed a, like a, a knife and told him to step back and watch thing possible. Because you can see what they need to do, but they don't want you to tell them. They want to figure it out themselves. 
Okay, can I put the stickers on for you? No, I want to do it. I want to do the stickers. That's the way it is with us and the Lord. So many times it's like he, he's looking down at us from heaven. He's like, but I, I could just do it. I could just do it for you. Just let me do it. Stop trying to do it yourself. And we say, no, it's okay. I got it. When the Lord makes the iron swim, we also have to be willing to reach out and take it. We see secondly this morning, perseverance in the middle of battle. Now, I'm not going to uh, take my time as much with this portion as I did the other because it's quite lengthy. But this is, to me, it's one of the coolest moments in Scripture. Verse 8 says, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are coming down. And the king of Israel sent to the place uh, which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Uh, many times in the Bible we can see that phrase, in such and such a place. It means that it's happened on more than one occasion. And the place was always like a different location. You know, so it happened here, and it happened there, and it happened there. Instead of listing all the places it happened, they just say, in such and such a place. So on many occasions, the Syrians tried to come down and uh, destroy the armies of Israel, only for God to send a message through his prophet to the king saying, don't be there, because the Syrians are going to be there. Over and over again. Uh, verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which one of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks that one of his servants is a spy for Israel. Because they always know where not to be. And a smart guy like the king of Syria, he knows. That's too big a coincidence. Right? They it, it can't do that. How else would they have known that the, that particular... Uh, no, it's fine. I like questions. Because what well, we know that God told the prophet to tell the king, don't be there. Oh, that's nice. Right, yeah. And so he thought, like many of us would have, naturally, they know too much. This isn't a coincidence. Somebody's telling him. Now, which one of you is it? But naturally, that would be what anybody would think, except we're talking about Israel here. So the spy is God. He knows all, and he's going, and he's telling his prophet, who's telling the king, and the king of Syria, not knowing much about the one true God of heaven, doesn't realize this. So in verse 12, it says, One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Not even pillow talk. Verse 13, And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. So they brought an army of horses and chariots to the city and surrounded the city where Elisha and the sons of the prophets were. 
and they are ready to siege the city and take Elisha captive. They're taking the messenger that he can no longer receive the messages. Verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, master, he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with him. Now when you read that, you might think, that might technically be true, but these are sons of prophets. They're, you know, they're farmers. They're regular people. They're women and children. Well, I have more in number, but these are trained army soldiers with, you know, armor and swords and chariots and horses. There's no way numbers alone is going to help them win this battle. Verse 17. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. What Syria couldn't see, what this young man couldn't see, was that God has a much bigger army than Syria. That the mountain was covered with angels, warriors from heaven, ready at the word of their king to slay Elisha's enemy. Elisha was never in any danger. But the servant couldn't see that. He did see through the eye of faith the armies that surrounded God's people and protected them. You are at this moment and every day of your life surrounded by that very same army. I would encourage you to mark that verse in your Bible, verse 17, because it's true of us. Nothing happens in your life without God's say-so. And that can be a very encouraging thought, but it can also be a very confusing thought at times, can't it? If nothing happens in my life without the Lord's consent, then why, this, why all this evil be befallen us? As the Bible says. Why is all this evil befallen us if the Lord is constantly in control? Because the Lord's ways are not our ways. We have determined there are things in our life we cannot live without. If we lose this person, if we lose this job, if we lose this house or this car, this thing in our life, I can't handle that. That's our words. What we don't realize is God is driving you somewhere better. We plan this good life for ourselves, right? And when it gets messed up along the way, we get upset. And what we fail to realize is our good plan, our good life got messed up because He's bringing us to somewhere great. His plans are better than yours. You just have to be patient. The armies of the Lord are around us all the time. And when they came down to Him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee. And that's where most of us would have stopped. 
Smite this people, I pray thee. You have an army. He just showed you the army, right? Clearly, that's on somebody's mind up there. Let's go ahead and smite them. But Elisha prays, smite these people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. That's mercy. Because they could have been killed, but instead he took away their, their sight, their ability to see. And that's symbolic too. Because God's people are given better sight through faith. Our faith gives us the ability to see things nobody else can see. The world is blinded. They can't see anything. They're fooled by the devil, they're blinded, and they're deceived. Just like the Syrian army. They thought they had the upper hand, right? They had all the chariots, they had all the armor, all the swords. They were the ones that should have won this battle. There's no reason Elisha should still be alive. But there are many things they cannot see because they don't have the eye of faith. Smite them, I pray thee, with blindness, and he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. He lied, by the way. It's another lie that uh, God used to do his work. But he led them to Samaria. You know who's in Samaria? The king. And it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? You can almost hear Dr. Seuss in that, can't you? Can I smite them here or there? Can I smite them anywhere? Can I smite them in a box? Can I smite them with a fox? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them, Sam, I am. <laughs> Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Elisha basically telling him here, if I wanted them killed, I wouldn't have had to have brought them to you. The Lord had an army follow me everywhere I go. They could have uh, they could have killed them all if that's what was wanted. I brought them to you so that they could see you being merciful, giving them bread and water for their journey and sending them back home. Because God's people should be people of mercy. We don't do payback. We don't do revenge or vengeance. The Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The concept, the very concept of vengeance belongs to God. It's not one that belongs to us. Christians have, those disciples of Christ, have made the decision in following Christ to surrender their right to vengeance. They have chosen to show mercy when they receive none. How many times have you thought or heard somebody else say, why should I do that for them? Why should I? That's why. I'm pointing to a cross for you guys on Facebook. Aren't you glad that when the soldiers came in the Garden of Gethsemane with swords and staves, 
to arrest Jesus and it was time for him to suffer for you, he didn't go, why should I? And had a legion of angels destroy all of those soldiers who invaded his prayer garden. Aren't you glad that as they were beating him with the palms of their hands and pulling out the hairs of his beard at the high priest's house, that he didn't go, why should I do this for them and break himself loose by the almighty power of the Messiah? The way Jesus looked on the earth is nothing compared to his true form. When he shows up the second time in his true form, he's a terrifying sight. You're not going to want to be against his sword. You're going to want to be behind him. One of those ones shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He could have done that on that day. The only thing that kept him from doing so was his love and his mercy. Boy, that was the worst timing ever, huh? The Lord shows us mercy. We should so. And he prepared, verse 23, great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and went, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the lands of Israel. That's what mercy did. Mercy made the enemy stay back a while. Mercy will do more for you in your life than will anything else. Part three of this lesson is extremely dark. You are not going to find this illustration in the Precious Moments Bible. It's about to get really bad. So everybody brace yourself. Thirdly and finally this morning, perseverance in the midst of evil times. Perseverance in the midst of evil times. Did you guys read that with me? Give me thy son so we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. Yeah. Verse 29. So we boiled my son. Yeah. And did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. So king, I want you to help me find her son so we can eat her. So we can eat him. It came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes. And he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, the, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God, do so and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. This is another 
thing we see amongst ourselves and others, we need a scapegoat. Right? When and it's it's basic psychology, when you lose control of a situation, we need something to make us feel as though we have control. So if we can blame somebody for that, right, then we can punish that person and that returns to us our sense of control over the situation. That's what we call a scapegoat. That person takes the brunt of it so that I can feel as though I'm in control again. But control, even in your own life, is an illusion. It's an illusion. You can't really have control over your own life. Everything that happens to you, happens to you because God said it was going to happen to you. Control is an illusion. You have no say over the very hairs of your head. You can't make one hair gray or white or any other color. God does that. Notice as a person begins to dye their hair, they have begin to have to dye it more and more often because God changes the color of their hair by nature. We have no control over that. You have no control over your own life, but the second you begin to trust the Lord, put your life in His hands and trust Him, that's when you begin to feel that true peace that passes all understanding. But he blamed Elisha. This is Elisha's fault. Elisha did this to us. God did this to us. But they did it to themselves, didn't they? They brought this upon themselves by veering from the Lord and veering from His will. And God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. You can, there's, there's half of the Old Testament is God's warnings to Israel before all of this terrible, all these terrible things began to happen. They didn't listen. But they still won't take responsibility for their own sins. Verse 32 says, But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See how this son of a murderer hath sent away to take my has sent to take away mine head? Look when the messenger cometh, shut the door. Hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came unto him and said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? This story will continue in chapter 7 next week, but we see the king's wrath in this. He's angry. He sees his people hurting. And he's angry about it. And he says, I'm tired of waiting on God. I'm done waiting on God. This changes now. There is great evil in this world. And the, the, the secret to persevering through evil times is to hang on to the hope of the Lord. To know that yes, something terrible is happening, but we will come to a place of something even greater if we return to the Lord. You know what he said in these in these books of the prophets to these people during this time? He says, come now, let us reason together. The Lord says to his people. He said, though your sin be as scarlet, I will make it white as snow. So as bad as they've gotten, they've never gotten so far that they can't turn back to God. Yet they never have, have they? 
They continue to blame others. They continue to pray to Baal. They continue to pray to the golden calf. And they refuse to turn to the Lord. And their situation gets worse and worse by their own choice to abandon the Lord that brought them there. Let it serve as a warning. The New Testament says, uh, they are they which testify of me that these Old Testament stories are here as a warning to us that we should not repeat their mistakes. That we should check our hearts to be sure that we're close to the Lord before we find ourselves unable to persevere in the midst of evil times. That's all we have for this morning. We will be back about 5 after uh, 11 this morning, and we will see you then.